Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Well, Jesus not only said he was the good shepherd, he proved it the night he was betrayed. When he saw the wolf coming, he didn't flee like a hireling. He stayed and proved himself to be a shepherd to the end. He didn't abandon his sheep. Instead, he prepared his flock for attack. He prayed with his flock, and he protected his flock as best he could. Let's gain a new and even deeper appreciation for the shepherd of our souls by observing him in action on that horrible night. And we begin by noting how the shepherd prepared, or at least tried to prepare, his flock for the wolves attack. We're studying in Matthew's gospel, we're in the 26th chapter, ready for verses 31 through 35. Then Jesus said to them, "You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you that this very night, before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, too. Jesus had told the disciples several times that he's going to die in Jerusalem. Now he tells them the time has come. The shepherd is going to be struck down. And as Zechariah prophesied, the flock will scatter. He's telling them to prepare them for the events that are about to take place. And he doesn't want them to be surprised, nor does he want them to be devastated by their reactions to his arrest. He knows what they'll do. They'll run. The prophet knew it, and Jesus knew it, but the disciples, they deny it. Peter is the first to object. No way. No way. The rest of the guys, they may run, but I won't. I will never leave you. They may scatter like sheep, but I won't. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. I'll never run. You know, it's so easy to think yourself brave 
before you face the enemy. They didn't want to hear what Jesus was telling them, but he told them anyway. They needed to know what they would do. They needed to know that he knew what they would do. And even more importantly, they needed the assurance that he would still be there for them after they did it. You will fall away. You will scatter when I'm struck down. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. I'll not give up on you. I'll not write you off because of your failure. They needed to hear that. Because they would need to know it after they did the unthinkable. You know, Jesus wasn't just getting them ready to face the future or to face failure. He was getting them ready for life after failure. He was assuring them of his forgiveness even before they needed it. And that's, that's so, so important. You know, as shepherds, whether we're shepherding a church, a Sunday school class, a group, a Bible study, whoever we're shepherding, we need to let our sheep know that we know things aren't going to be perfect. And as parents, we need to do that for our kids. You know, they need to know that we know they're not perfect, that they're going to mess up. They're going to do some things that they can't even imagine themselves doing, but we can. We don't like it, but we know human nature. And we know the strength of the enemy. We know they're going to lose a battle now and then because we've lost a battle now and then. But no matter what, we'll be there for them. And so... With the Lord. That's so important. We try so hard to get our kids to do right. We warn them of the consequences of sin. But in the midst of those warnings, we can never forget to assure them of God's grace and His forgiveness. We must let them know that when they fail, and they will fail, Forgiveness is there. That is crucial information. Our kids need to know that telling them forgiveness is available is not giving them license to sin. Okay? It's promising them that they're loved and they'll be forgiven no matter what. That we need to communicate. And that's what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples. That's how he was preparing them for the bad times. Jesus was preparing his flock. He was doing a good job of it. At least he was trying. But there's more to it than that. And he continued. Not only did he try to prepare them, he prayed with his flock. Or again, he at least tried to. Let's read on. This is interesting. Then Jesus came to them, with them, to a place called Gethsemane, and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. 
And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. We're all aware of the agony Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was in the Garden that he made his final surrender to his Father's will. He didn't want to go to the cross. He didn't want to have to bear the sins of the world. He didn't want to be cut off from his Father. His soul was grieved to the point of death as he contemplated what was about to transpire. But even in the midst of his own distress and the greatest struggle of his life, he was watching over his flock. When they got to the garden, Jesus told the disciples to have a seat. He wanted them to watch and pray with him. He wanted them to be spiritually on guard and to pray not to enter into temptation, to be overwhelmed by the events that would soon take place. He didn't stay right there with the disciples because he needed some private prayer time with his father. But he didn't go far. If the garden that is presently identified as the Garden of Gethsemane is indeed the actual garden in which he prayed, it's about the size of a, of a big lot in a subdivision, 140 by 150 feet. So Jesus wasn't far from any of them. He did, however, take Peter, James, and John a little further into the garden with him. Why did he do that? Well, most commentators suggest it was because they were his inner circle. They were his closest friends, and he was looking to them for moral support. The old preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, offers another suggestion. He suggests that Jesus kept them closer to himself, not because he needed them, but because they needed him. 
And the more I think about that, the more I like it. It was Peter, James, and John who were allowed to go into Jairus' house and witness the raising of his daughter. It was also Peter, James, and John who were taken up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, we ask, why? Was it because Jesus just wanted them with him on those occasions? Or because he knew they needed to be there? Maybe they weren't the strongest disciples. Maybe they were the weakest Maybe they needed to actually see Jesus raise Jairus' daughter, not just hear about it. Maybe they needed to see Christ transfigured in order to know who he really was. And maybe Jesus kept them close to himself in the garden because he was afraid of what they'd do if they got too far away from him. After all, which of Which of your kids do you keep closest in a store full of breakables? (laughs) The ones you know will behave or the ones who are a little harder to control? James and John, you remember, were called the sons of thunder because they wanted to rain down fire and brimstone on those who didn't welcome Jesus in Samaria. And we'll soon see Peter swinging a sword to defend Jesus. What would they have done if they had been the first to see Judas and the soldiers coming and Jesus wasn't right there to keep him in check? I think there's a good chance that's why Jesus took them a little further into the garden and why he came back to check on them three times. He wasn't looking to them for support. He was simply checking on them. He wanted them close by, and he wanted them praying, not for his sake, but for their own. He wanted them ready for what was about to happen. Even in the midst of the greatest struggle of his life, he wasn't thinking about himself. As a good shepherd, he was worrying about his flock and personally watching over his weakest lambs. I really like that. I like that. And if we view it this way, we don't have to turn verse 46 into a question. When Jesus came back the third time and found Peter, James, and John sleeping, the text actually says, Keep on sleeping and taking your rest. Now, if we think he was upset with them, that they had failed him, we might hear him saying those words with sarcasm and critical. Or we might just change it into a question, which most modern translations do. But if we see Jesus caring for them, like a shepherd caring for his sheep, we can see him standing there watching over them, saying, go ahead, get some sleep. You're going to need it. And then when he sees the mob coming, he wakes them up and says, arise. The one who betrays me is at hand. He was indeed 
a shepherd to the end. He prepared his flock. He prayed with his flock. And he even tried to protect his flock. Let's read on. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he's the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you've come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Now the great thing about having four Gospels, is that they complement each other and they fill in the details. John and Luke give us some very important additional details to this encounter. John tells us that when the mob arrived, Jesus approached them and asked, Whom do you seek? When they said, Jesus the Nazarene, he replied, I am he. It so shocked them that they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And again they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus responded, I told you that I am he. And then he said, if therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Don't you love it? Don't you love it? They've come to strike down the shepherd, and he's worried about his sheep. He's protecting his flock. If you're looking for me, you found me. Just let everyone else go. Luke tells us that Judas then approached Jesus to kiss him. But before he can do anything, Jesus says, Judas? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? It's still not too late. He doesn't have to do it. Jesus has already identified himself. But Judas callously says, Hail, Rabbi, and kisses him, as he had agreed to do for 30 pieces of silver. But even at that, Jesus says, friend, he calls him friend, do 
what you've come for. And they seize him. They seize him. The disciples respond, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And before he can answer, Peter takes a swipe at Malchus, the high priest's slave, and cuts off his ear. He apparently wasn't a very good aim. He didn't practice enough. Jesus cried, stop, no more of this, and restored Malchus's ear. He told Peter to put his sword back into its sheath, no doubt saving him from arrest by insisting that he do so. And then he made the well-known statement, all those who take up the sword shall die by the sword. Which, contrary to popular understanding, cannot be a universal call for pacifism and non-resistance. Why can I say that? Because just a few moments earlier, in the upper room, Jesus had told the disciples if they didn't have a sword, they should go out and buy one, even if they had to sell their cloak to get one. They were being sent into a hostile, evil world and might have to defend themselves. But they didn't have to defend Jesus. If he wanted, he could ask the Father and he'd send twelve legions of angels to protect him and them. And that may be why he said twelve legions. A Roman legion is six thousand men. Maybe he was thinking of a legion for himself and a legion for each of the remaining eleven. Whatever the case, he didn't need a legion of angels. And the soldiers didn't need swords and clubs. He had no intention of fighting. What was happening had been prophesied. And he had, in fact, come to earth for the very purpose of giving himself into the hands of evil men to die and rise again so he could offer those evil men and the rest of us forgiveness and eternal life. His disciples didn't yet understand all of this, and so they fled. He had protected them from the mob and Peter from retribution for cutting off Malchus's ear, but they didn't yet realize that he was in control of everything. We, however, have the advantage of hindsight. Jesus proved himself to be a shepherd to the end. He's not a hireling who runs when the wolf approaches. He stays with his sheep. He prepares his flock. He prays with his flock. And he protects his flock. We know that to be true. And because of it, 
we are able to sing with confidence, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. If you've not already done so, now is the time to publicly commit yourself to the one who came to earth to be the shepherd of your soul.